Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today we'll hear from the left's leading sports journalist, Dave Zirin, on Colin Kaepernick and the tradition of activist athletes, and then the data architect, Wayne Monroe, will deflate all the hype around artificial intelligence. I'm not a sports fan, though fate played a little trick on me by giving me a son who is, but I have no patience for people on the left who are contemptuous of sports because they're a distraction from politics or because they're aggressive and competitive and no model for any society to follow. Nice way to dismiss something that gives great pleasure to billions. And as my first guest, Dave Zirin, argues, aside from being great entertainment, sports are very much embedded in our society and are therefore unavoidably political. Zirin, the sports editor of The Nation magazine, is just out with a book, The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World, published by The New Press. It explores not only Colin Kaepernick's original gesture, which ignited quite the firestorm, but the effect it had on athletes across the country not just professionals, but in high schools and colleges as well. Kaepernick, for those who have been living under a rock, in 2016 knelt rather than stood for the national anthem, as police shootings of black people, a tragically routine feature of American life, became a hot political issue. Suddenly, not only athletes, but cheerleaders as well were spurred into activism, and their stories are the subject of Dave Zirin's book. Dave Zirin. Wow, it's getting on like five years now since uh, Colin Kaepernick uh, hit the headlines. As you say at the beginning of the book, he was kind of the last guy you'd expect to do this. What was his background? What kind of personality did he have? And uh, why was he such a surprise that uh, he took this action? Yeah, Colin Kaepernick, he was born in very dire circumstances. And then he was adopted and raised by a, a white family in, in suburban Wisconsin. Uh, went to the University of Nevada, was a s- staggeringly good athlete there, but very unnoticed because Nevada is not necessarily known as a pipeline to the pros. And um, he was drafted, and he quickly made a great name for himself. Very, very intelligent. He was a 4.0 student at Nevada. Not that that means necessarily intelligence, but it shows a certain seriousness about study. And he also is somebody who uh, is very, very soft-spoken. And that's why he would have been the last person one might have expected to turn the sports world and the political world upside down. But for people who were paying close attention to his social media that summer of 2016, it wasn't entirely a surprise. Because if you remember summer of 2016, that's when the police killed a man named Alton Sterling and then a man named Philando Castile first in Louisiana, then in Minnesota. And the videos of those killings went viral. And that caused a lot of pain, a lot of trauma, and a lot of protest. And that's really what Colin Kaepernick was responding to when he took that seat, not a knee, but a seat during the national anthem during an August preseason game. And what was the reaction of his teammates and the rest of the league, of the players, that is? Well, it was largely, would have been, I would argue, largely unnoticed. I mean, he took his seat on a bench behind his teammates. No one really paid it much mind. None of the media even noticed. And it might have just been a one-week thing of Colin saying, gosh, I'm just so disgusted with this country and the state of policing. I'm not standing for this anthem. But he was seen by a reporter who I interview in the book named Steve Weish. And Steve Weish is someone who'd been, who had known Colin and been following him since his days in college. Steve Weish, Howard University graduate, uh, who had a political sense of what was happening in the country, which a lot of NFL reporters do not have. And so he immediately saw that there was a story there and made a beeline for Colin. They did an interview. The interview went viral. And then it was off and running. And the rest of the league, what was the reaction? Horror. Absolute horror. Because, you know, there there is a... A financial partnership that existed and that had existed at the time for about seven years between the Pentagon and the NFL called the Salute to Service Program or Tribute to the Troops. And it's like I said, it's a financial partnership. And what it involved was making sure the players were not in the locker room during the anthem and were standing at attention. And Colin Kaepernick refused to do it. And so there was a backlash. Of course, you know, the right wing media hordes went nuts. Donald Trump was in full bloom by August 2016. So there was a maelstrom of ugliness that surrounded 
what he did, which interestingly links to why he took a knee. That came out of a discussion that he had with a former NFL player and a former Green Beret who said to him, this would be probably seen maybe as more respectful and less controversial if instead of sitting on a bench behind your teammates, if you went out in front of them and took a knee, because it would show that you understand the solemnity of the moment of, but at the same time, you're registering your dissent. And Colin thought that was a great idea. Little did they both know that all they were about to do was just throw a ton of gasoline on the fire. One of the high school coaches you write about said uh, they're trying to intertwine sports and patriotism. <laughs> and like what you talked about, that, that deal with the Pentagon is certainly an example of that. But every game, every athletic event begins with a singing of the Star Spangled Banner. I don't think that happens in normal countries. <laughs> no, it does not. It's actually incredibly rare. I've looked at this a lot over the years. I mean, well before uh, the salute to service stuff, I, you know, I was looking at the history of this, Doug, and it's it's really fascinating. If I could just uh, go on an annoying digression for a moment. No, 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 please do, because, you know, this is part of the reason that a lot of people on the left have trouble with sports. It's seen as, you know, this almost like the military, this enforced ritual of patriotism. So tell us how this came to be. Well, first of all, our, our national anthem is a martial song. It's a military song that was written part of the War of 1812, Francis Scott Key, 1814, people might- By a slave owner. Yes, not only by a slave owner, but there's a third verse to the anthem that we do not sing that basically is a rebuke of freeing slaves. So it, it's an ugly song. And, and I'm not just talking melodically. And it only started to be played during sporting events during the First World War as a tribute to the troops. And then it actually stops until you get to the Second World War. And then it starts playing again. And then after the Second World War, the minders of sports just decided to keep it. And it was like a signal to the country that the transition from World War II would not be one of peace, but it would be one to a, a Cold War. Permanent war mobilization just became yes, the norm. exactly. Permanent war footing was the original message of playing the national anthem at all sporting events. It was also widely incorporated by the Boy Scouts in youth sports. And the Boy Scouts were, you know, an openly anti-communist organization. It's always been tied in not just to patriotism, but, but to war. And so you fast forward to after 9-11, it amps up to another level. And a, a sports writer who all leftists who hate sports should read named Howard Bryant wrote a terrific book called The Heritage about the ramping up of the, the sort of patriotic bombast after 9-11 and how that led to things like the salute to service stuff and also how it led to really a rebellion of black athletes against this kind of compulsory patriotism. So let's uh, talk a bit about the heritage of jock activism. An awful lot of people think of athletes as just dumb guys uh, who um, are paid to be paid very well often to be physical, but not uh, talk or think or disrupt anything. That's not exactly fair. There is a history of athletes uh, being activists uh, politically, but there's certainly Muhammad Ali in the 60s, John Carlos, but something happened in the intervening years until Kaepernick revived this tradition. Yeah, there's this incredibly long history. It goes back for as long as there's been sports in this country. There have been dissenters inside of sports. And that's because when organized sports start in this country as a big business in the 19th century, it starts with the myth of inclusion and the reality of exclusion. Uh, the myth of inclusion was, you know, sports was marketed in the 19th century as being a reflection of the best of America, the ultimate meritocracy. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, immigrant or native born, this is your space. Uh, there's only one problem with that. The reality was exclusion. Women, not allowed to play. If you're black or brown, you better make your own league or do whatever, but you're not going to have any access to the main money. God, if you're LGBTQ, forget about it. You know, there, there's no openness uh, for you to be yourself in the sports world. And there wouldn't be for, I mean, some would argue that's still the case in many respects. I mean, there was just a celebration in the NFL this past weekend because the first openly gay player took the field. This is 2021, for goodness sakes, and they acted like it was Stonewall or something. But because there's always been this reality of exclusion and this myth of inclusion, there's always been a struggle for inclusion by marginalized groups. So sports has always, always, always had this political base of people fighting for the right to play. Now, you just said something totally true, Doug. Absolutely right. Like you have 
Ali in the 60s, Smith and Carlos, you have Billie Jean King in the 70s and the women's movement reflected in sports. But in the in the decades before we see Colin take a knee, it is a pretty thin gruel. And I spent a lot of years writing about sports and politics during that period. And it was few and far between. There were certainly athletes who kept the flame of hope alive. But what you don't have is a kind of movement inside of sports. And you only see that happen with the rise of two very important factors. One is the Black Lives Matter movement, because, you know, if you look at the 60s, you have to have that movement off the field for it to reflect on the field. And then also a big deal is the growth of social media, because there's so much mistrust between athletes and the media that this ability to all of a sudden be able to manipulate your platform and speak directly to fans, that was a game changer as well. And I'll say another game changer, too in recent years. And um, I think maybe some of uh, the sports haters aren't going to want to hear this, but it was LeBron James. And I'm sure everybody's heard of LeBron James. Uh, LeBron James. Even I have heard of LeBron James. (laughs) LeBron James decided that he wanted to be a political person, as he put it, in the tradition of Muhammad Ali. And it hasn't always been smooth and it hasn't always been perfect, but his desire to use his platform to speak about political issues that he cared about, from voting to education to racism to police brutality, what it did was it bent the entire NBA and the WNBA towards a political direction that did not exist before. Now, much of your book is uh, writing about uh, high school and college athletes who are inspired by Kaepernick to uh, activism on their own. And uh, yeah, a lot of them suffered terrible consequences for it. So like, give us some idea of like the high school students who were inspired by him. Tell a few stories along those lines. Yeah, yeah. The, the book is in three parts. Of course, that was very conscious. Um, high school, college, and professional. And it's because at each of those levels, there may be similarities in terms of, first of all, uh, backlash experienced, Uh, Certainly the threat of violence is a common thread through all three sections in terms of what people have to deal with in the aftermath of this supposedly peaceful protest, you know, the the provocation of violent threats and and sometimes actual violence is, is something that is throughout the book. But, you know, in high school there are very specific challenges. You know, there's the fear of, of standing out. I mean, you take a knee on your team, all of a sudden, you know, you're held up for derision and ridicule. And I think we all remember high school and how difficult that might be, particularly if you're an athlete, because being an athlete in high school usually comes with a degree of entitlement, a degree of lowercase p privilege. And all of a sudden, you know, you're sacrificing all of that because you give a damn about racial inequity in the United States. In college, it's a totally different situation in that, you know, you're granted these scholarships, but these scholarships are only renewed on an annual basis. So if you piss off your coach so much for your education, you could have a 4.0 GPA and be president of the school. If you're not seen as fitting in the new coach's offense, you're going to be, you know, out on your ass. Yeah, now this is an interesting point because a lot of these star college athletes, uh, as you say, and other people have said too, are kind of like indentured servants. Yes. Yeah. The, The writing on that speaks for itself. I used to get in debates on sports radio about whether college athletes should be paid as workers or not, should be respected as workers. And people don't even want to have those debates anymore because the system is so manifestly unjust that it's evident. Either it's evident to people or they don't want to argue it because they realize they're going to lose every time. I mean, when you have coaches making 10, 11 million dollars a year and players who are sneaking and stealing food from the cafeteria because they're too hungry at night to sleep, that's not a situation worth defending. But it says something to me that we're seeing changes on the college level. It's slow, but you're seeing changes, namely the college athletes now have the right to their name, image, and likeness and can do commercials and things like that. I would argue that's, that flows indirectly from Kaepernick taking his knee. Similarly, I would argue that the Washington football team changing its name from a racial slur aimed at indigenous people, the fact that they're changing their name, that flows from Colin Kaepernick taking his knee as well and the Black Lives Matter movement. When you have these protests against racism in sports, it can have a ripple effect because it puts the powers that be on notice that all instances of racism and injustice are now under the microscope and on the clock. I'm speaking with the sports journalist Dave Zirin, author of The Kaepernick Effect, just out from the New Press. Yeah, unlike high school, uh, but with pro sports and with college sports, there's an awful lot of money at stake. So any idea that of rocking the boat is seen as a threat to that uh, the cash flow. Yeah, and when you're, say, a professional football player and the typical career only lasts three years, 
uh, you know, you're risking a significant amount of the money that you expect to earn over the course of your entire life. And since professional sports still draw the majority of their labor from the poorest people in the United States, you're also risking the ability to lift your entire family and oftentimes friends and extended family out of poverty. You're risking all of that by taking that knee. Uh, okay, let me um, rehearse some of the objections that people have raised to, to uh, Kaepernick and uh, people who followed his example. Professional football players are rich. What are they complaining about? Yes, there's a lot of money in being a professional athlete. The contracts, though, are not guaranteed. The careers last only three years, and it has a 100% injury rate. And the life expectancy of a professional football player is dramatically lower than a typical American male. All of those things need to be put forward. Also, we need to understand that these players may not be now living in places like uh, rural Mississippi or South Central Los Angeles, but they're still very connected to those communities and their workers. We know this, that being a worker in this society is you know, somewhat about income. I mean, that, that plays into how we understand it, but it's really about your relationship to production. And these athletes, they are the workers in football. But I got to say, they're more than just the workers. They're also the product. I, I had this, this football player named Brian Mitchell once said to me, I asked him, I said, how come you make so much more money than, say, someone who works in a restaurant? Is that fair? And Brian Mitchell said to me, well, you know, you have a chef and a chef cooks a steak in a restaurant. Football players, we're both the chef and the steak. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a bit of a diversion from uh, your book, but what does happen to a professional football player? I mean, you know, Tom Brady is old at 42 and still playing, but that's unusual. You have three or five years or maybe 10 years, but then, then what? What do they do? Sometimes there's very little to do. The numbers of bankruptcies is, is, is off the page. I mean, we're talking, I mean, these statistics may have changed. But a decade ago, it was at 87% end up bankrupt. If someone had handed me 95% of the money I would earn in my entire life when I was 22 years old, I guarantee you I'd be penniless talking to you right now. What we put on their shoulders is a dramatic recipe for self-destruction. And then, of course, the physical consequences of broken brains and bodies. Yes, all a part of it. And again, that's what made Colin, what Colin Kaepernick did so explosive because football is the most brutal of the mainstream sports, but it's also the most uh, authoritarian. It's the most top-down. It's the most conservative. You said baseball is the most conservative of sports in the book. Yes. but uh... I, I did say baseball was the most conservative, partly because I go back and forth in my own mind about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting debate. It's an interesting thought exercise about which sport is actually more conservative. But I'll tell you the sport that's more volatile is football. Michael Bennett, who's a former NFL player who I did a book with, he said, you know, the big myth is that the NFL is integrated. It's a segregated sport in that you, the, it's the black players who put their bodies on the line and suffer and it's white ownership and white management. So it's a segregated product. And I think about that because Players know this, and there, there's a lot of anger and restiveness about the state of affairs in the NFL. The injury rate is a part of that. The fact that the NFL hid their own scientific studies showing the effects of concussions is a part of that. There's just a lot of anger there, along with people feeling like, wow, I better clutch this job with both hands because this is my golden ticket for me and my family. And this mess of contradictions that exists in the NFL around race, around class, is precisely why when Colin Kaepernick did what he did, without the approval of his coach, without the approval of his general manager, without the approval of the franchise owner. For an NFL franchise owner, that's a canary in the coal mine. That freaked them out to untold levels. That's why the Washington football team changed their name, because they can't have the discussion of racism as part of the daily conversation about their sport, because their sport is so rife with it systemically. Another one of the objections that people raise is, and I think you attribute this to liberals more than um, the right, which was more rabid. I agree with his message, but I don't like the way he went about it. As in the book, I quote Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail because, you know, we, we've, we've heard this before, as Dr. King wrote, people who want to see change but don't want too many feathers to be ruffled or don't want it to happen too fast because you think it'll upset the other side. Those are people who are calling for, you know, skinning a, a tiger one stripe at a time. The idea of lecturing to people who are oppressed, the manner by which they should fight their oppression is, is not a recipe for victory. Uh, it's a recipe for division and failure. I meant to bring this up earlier, but uh, it wasn't just the players. Cheerleaders, high school and college, got involved in protests too, right? 
I I interview a ton of cheerleaders in the book. They're some of the most radical actors in the book. And uh, oftentimes the cheerleaders acted precisely because their football team at the high school or collegiate level was not acting. Uh, And they felt the need to have this issue heard. They felt the need to make sure that people in the stands felt uncomfortable about the reality of police brutality, that this wasn't time for all fun and games, not when people are dying in the streets, not when these videos are going viral. And oftentimes they felt a sense of disgust with the fact that the football players who have this very, of course, macho persona were not willing to dare pissing off their coach or the fans. And so they took a knee because the football players were not. Also, a lot of the cheerleaders I spoke to a common thread is that, you know, they take a great deal of pride in the fact that they're effectively the face of, of, of their school. So for them to use that kind of platform to say, there's actually a problem in this society, we can't be cheering for schools when we have these broader social issues, that takes a lot of guts. It's jarring for a cheerleader. Cheerleaders are supposed to be cheerful <laughs> and, and, and pretty and uh, not really um, rock the boat. And of course, uh, professional athletes can be brutal, but they're not supposed to uh, disrupt the smooth flow of uh, social life. So for people in these, these roles to take these political stances is really quite a shocker. Yeah. And that's why the, the first reason why I even wrote this book, Doug, was I was scared that all of this was going to get memory hold and forgotten. You know, it started from a pretty innocuous conversation I had with the 1968 Olympian, John Carlos. And John Carlos said to me in a very offhand way, we we're just having a casual conversation. He said, wow, after we raised our fists in Mexico City in 1968, track people were doing it all over the country. And I was like, what? I've never seen photos of that. And he said, oh, yeah, it's happening everywhere. And I felt sad because I was like, well, who were those people? What happened to them? What repercussions did they face? I know the story of John Carlos and Tommy Smith, but what about all these others? And of course, it's been 50 years. They've been lost to the winds of time. But I knew that people had taken a knee after Kaepernick because you would see these one-off stories in the newspaper or AP. I covered individual stories for the nation. But I didn't want the fact that this happened to get memory hold. And where is it now? I mean, five years ago is a long time. Uh, we have a different president now, uh, and that's changed the mood somewhat. So uh, where, where are these uh, protests at now? I just got someone sent me a photo of a Little League team in Seattle uh, where everybody took a knee before the anthem just uh, the other week. I mean, it's still happening. And some people say, well, taking a knee, it's kind of lost its edge. But to me, it's that old expression, you know, in politics, timing is everything, you know, and context is everything. Like if you're taking a knee because you're an English Premier League soccer player and management has said, we're all going to take a knee this week to show the fans that we don't like racism. I mean, that's kind of a performative celebration of anti-racism. And frankly, you know, we could do, we could deal with having more of those, but it's not exactly what I'm talking about in this book. I'm talking about like a middle schooler in Beaumont, Texas, who takes a knee or someone who does it over the objections of their coach, like that's still happening. And that still has an edge to me that can push conversations forward. And someone like that has taken a lot of risk. I mean, professional sports players, of course, are taking risk, but they do have some money and some celebrity. But if you're in a small town in Texas or Missouri, you can get eaten alive. Absolutely. Eaten alive is the right word. I mean, when I talk to a young man from Brunswick, Ohio, in the book, Rodney Axon, And I asked him about the fallout and he talks about having to walk his little sister to elementary school because of threats he'd gotten over social media. That's really jarring. Okay, then let me ask you the question I've been dying to ask for a long time. And a lot of people on the left think sports are a big distraction. They're macho, they're brutal, they model the wrong kinds of human behavior, uh, and they have a real deep political and visceral hostility to sports. You obviously are quite fond of sports. Um, So what do you say to those classic left-wing objections to the whole game? The classic left-wing objection is that it's a distraction. But to me that there's a a lot of condescension to that because, you know, we live in a capitalist society that produces culture. And you, you don't hear those same leftists say that music is a distraction or dramatic arts are a distraction. Yet all of these cultural products contain elements of contradiction and elements of the grossness of the current society in which we live in. And sometimes I I wonder, like, why is sports held out for particular scorn when these other cultural products are not? And I think one reason is that they're enjoyed by mass of working people. I think there's uh, some class contempt that seeps out when people go against sports. 
Also, I think a lot of leftists, and I, I don't say this at all derisively or mockingly, I don't say this at all. A lot of them had very understandably bad experiences with sports when they were in high school, feeling like they're on the outside of the, of this group of cool kids who act in ways that they found repellent. And so they carry that over into their politics because that, that's also a reality in this country in terms of entitlement in sports. And it's very ugly. And it's actually one of the things in the book that a lot of the young athletes have to confront is like risking their own sports entitlement to, in terms of taking the stand. But lastly, I think what they're disregarding and don't understand is that so much incredible struggle can reflect itself through sports. I mean, there's a reason why we can't talk about the civil rights movement without talking about Jackie Robinson or the 60s without talking about Ali or the 70s in the women's movement without talking about Billie Jean King. And we're never going to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement without talking about Kaepernick taking that knee. I mean, it's because sports are part of our society and we need to understand it. Um, you know, Ralph Nader used to say, uh, you better turn on the politics or politics are going to turn on you. I feel that way about sports. Like people should understand sports or else they're going to be left out of understanding what's happening in the broader world. One of the most famous objectors to sports is Noam Chomsky. And I got to interview Chomsky about sports and his thoughts about sports. And he started speaking with incredible lucidity and memory about being a Philadelphia baseball fan in the 1930s. So Noam Chomsky to me at his age with his degree of clarity and memory about sports is actually a sports treasure and he should be in documentaries about sports. And so the person who decries it, I think is invaluable in our understanding of it. That was Dave Zirin, sports editor of The Nation and author of The Kaepernick Effect, just out from the new press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Speaking of scandals around the National Anthem, that was some of Igor Stravinsky's arrangement of the Star-Spangled Banner performed by the London Symphony under Michael Tilson Thomas. When Stravinsky conducted his arrangement with the uh, Boston Symphony in 1944, the dissonant chords at the end of the excerpt prompted a scandalized member of the audience to call the police. Stravinsky was visited by a cop who told him he was tampering with national property, and the scores were removed from the music stands. Next, artificial intelligence, or AI. AI has been the subject of serious hype for decades. It's long been touted as something that will transform life and disemploy many of us in the process. What's the truth behind the hype? Here to tell that truth is Dwayne Monroe, who has been working in the world of software for over 20 years, currently as a cloud data architect, an occupation that involves lots of AI and machine learning. As he puts it, he's like a Marxist industrial worker in the 1930s who understood both production and politics and knew how to do theory. Dwayne Monroe. Artificial intelligence, what is the history of this term? Who coined it? When? And how has the definition evolved over time? The term was first coined in, um, in the late 50s. I believe it was a scientist named John McCarthy at a conference among other scientists of the day who coined the term in an aspirational sense. In other words, they were describing what they were uh, seeking to achieve, what they were working to achieve, where it was, of course, machines um, and systems that could be described as an intelligent, also in the sense that, that Alan Turing meant when he came out with his, his famous uh, Turing test, that uh, a device or rather a system that could convince a human being that it was in fact intelligent, it could be considered intelligent. And has that evolved over time or is it pretty much uh, throughout the last 50, 60 years? That term has stayed consistent and it has, of course, remained aspirational despite the fact that there are people who are striving to have us believe that every 
an incremental step towards machines that could be considered autonomous and actually engaging in the world the way that we do, or even in the way that cats and dogs do, which of course is also intelligent. It has remained consistent. And there's been a series over the past half century or more of what are called uh, AI winters. Uh, One of the first AI winters occurred, I believe it was in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, when there was a great deal of enthusiasm for uh, methodologies such as what were called receptrons, um, the work of Marvin Minsky and so forth. They successfully devised mathematical principles based upon statistics and probabilistic statistics about how you could analyze data. But also um, there was a, uh, what is that, a model for intelligence or rather a model for systems based upon the human neuron, roughly speaking. And so there would be times of progress. Uh, for example, in the 1960s, um, there was a great deal of work in what was called symbolic logic. Everyone will recall how 9000 from 2000, well, not everyone, but those who love the movie from uh, Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. How was, uh, I guess, a fictional embodiment of what was considered to be the goal at the time, which was creating logic, heuristics, and then embedding a system with a sufficient amount of knowledge about the world, the universe, and so forth, that consciousness and intelligence would emerge. In more recent years, particularly in the 2010s, we have seen the drive of big data and machine learning, which is really statistics and probabilistic statistics applied to data. And that has produced some pretty interesting effects, such as what we're seeing with image recognition and voice recognition and so forth, you know, Siri and Alexa. So there, there has been obviously modifications. There have obviously been advancements over the decades. However, those advancements have not taken us any closer to what could be considered an actually independent, intelligent artificial system. But the term itself has persisted. Now, in a previous life, I used to index a lot of scientific books, quite a few computer science books, some of which covered artificial intelligence. And back then, late 80s, early 90s, it was the same handful of examples over and over again. I remember there was some interview with an old Campbell soup cooker, uh, and I try to figure out how to take his experience in cooking Campbell's soup and turn it into some kind of machine knowledge. Um, but like I said, there were just the same handful of examples over and over again. It was all very underwhelming. Where are we 35 years later? Have we made much progress from that point? Those were called expert systems. They were all the rage a number of decades ago. And as you say, the idea was that you could sit down with an expert, say a, a, you know, a person who cooks soup or a surgeon or a physician, and you could record or somehow uh, capture their knowledge in uh, symbolic logic and then place that inside of a um, system that would then be able to duplicate the knowledge and the intuition even of, of the person. Uh, of course, that effort did not bear fruit. It's very difficult because, of course, as you can imagine, if you even were to sit down with an individual and say, what did you do during your completely mundane day? It would create reams and reams of activity to capture. So obviously, that was something that was uh, an extremely high mountain to climb. In the 2010s in particular, the introduction of game processing units for gaming, which uh, was even more advanced form of CPU, higher performance, And the availability of reams and reams and reams, mountains and mountains of data through the internet and the application of those those two factors or the use of those two factors against statistical methods that have been developed mostly in the 1980s um, and 1990s has produced some pretty remarkable advances. But all of these advances are really based upon the ability to find patterns. You work in economics, and so I'm sure you're very familiar with linear regression. Much of what we see that has been quite, quite impressive, and I admit that even though I'm a a critic or a person who critiques this this area quite strongly, many of these things are quite impressive, but they're impressive, impressive in very narrow ways. So for example, Siri doesn't understand anything. However, what Apple has been able to do is uh, capture and create uh, a symbolic representation of vocal data, which enables it to respond to something that, that seems to sound like chair or car or weather, things like that. Uh, but there is no understanding. In narrow areas such as game playing, as we saw with AlphaGo or the IBM program that uh, defeated Kasparov and so forth, in very narrow areas, um, we have seen really quite remarkable and impressive progress, but no progress towards creating machines that can operate independently in the world and engage in novel situations. And we see this, of course, with the 
autopilot um, and the self-driving efforts of Tesla and Waymo and other companies, which, you know, as long as their systems are navigating very narrow parameters, uh, everything's fine. But the moment they have to navigate in the real world, the system reaches its limits because there are edge cases, as, as they say. The real world is nothing but a series of innumerable edge cases. And you and I, we navigate this quite, quite nicely because we've evolved over time and we have very subtle ways of uh, interpreting things. And also we have a backlog of knowledge about how the world works. Like I know that if I jump from 20 feet, I'm probably going to die. But uh, I know that. But a machine just has no way of knowing that. Well, I know they claim like, what, 99% accuracy or something, but that's actually pretty terrible. <laughs> 1% of your time driving is very risky. It is. And also that, you know, the, the, those high percentages, again, you know, it's quite impressive, but it's impressive, on, as, as you say, until you get to the edge case. And there's so many edge cases when you drive. The ball rolls you know, into the street. A, a cat you know, um, runs into the street. Something always happens. The way that these self-driving or so-called self-driving systems are trained, and the, the term training is used with machine learning, for example, in which you have a data set and then you're running iterations of algorithms through the data set so that it recognizes the patterns. Well, you, you can do that against very large data sets, but then once the system encounters something that's not in its training data, not in its data set, everything falls apart. It annoys me that every time we do a capture, we're training AI driving. Yes, that's exactly right. That's precisely right. And, and this happens quite a bit that people don't even realize that um, much of what we do is designed to feed data into this, this ever-widening maw of, of data ingestion. There's a cognitive scientist, Gary Marcus, uh, who, along with his co-author, Ernest Davis, wrote a book called Rebooting AI. And he writes quite a bit about um, the narrowness and the brittleness of current systems. And his point is really primarily that um, it is important to not mistake success in narrow areas with the ability to, to as I say, navigate an extremely complex and ever-changing world. So nobody's really in danger of passing a Turing test now. No. Well, here's one of the things about the Turing test that Joseph Wiesenbaum um, recognized when he wrote his book, who created the program ELISA. And as some listeners may recall, ELISA was a program developed, I believe it was in the 1960s, in which it would ask you questions or you could, you could over a keyboard converse with it. It was a very simple response to inputs. And whenever uh, the input was something that um, was not listed or not available within its catalog of responses, it would simply take a keyword and then create a question based upon that keyword, you know, like, tell me about your mother, th things like that. We evolved to understand that when we are communicating with something, that something is alive and thinking. When a person looks at a baby or an, uh, another adult or, or a, a dog, you know that um, there is a mind behind that. And this is how we evolved. So we fool ourselves into thinking that things are passing the Turing test. We even call our laptops that get on our nerves and that show no signs of, of any kind of intelligence. We anthropomorphize those things saying, well, the computer is angry with me today or something like that. We do it all the time because that's just how we are, right? Well, I remember Sherry Turkle writing about how the computer is an unusual machine in that we um, project a psychology onto it and have a We do, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is a bit unusual because it is an interactive device. But we also, I mean, people do that with, you know, sailing vessels and their cars. And, you know, so that, that as human beings, this is just how we make sense of the world. And so a lot of what happens with the systems that Silicon Valley uh, is, is pushing on us is that uh, those systems do not possess the capabilities that they're often promoted as having, but we fill in the gaps. Sometimes we fill in the gaps quite literally, as in the case of, say, Amazon Mechanical Turk which was supposed to provide AI to, to companies. But in, in reality, there's, it's often people um, behind the scenes. You mentioned CAPTCHA. We are doing the training. So it's not as if you're sending some science fictional device out into the world and say, observe and learn in some Star Trekian sense. We're actually doing all the work to actually make these machines useful. And it's unacknowledged labor uh, that the tech giants they obscure it. I wouldn't say they keep it hidden because you, you can find it if you look for it, look for the information. But they do obscure because they're presenting a view of what they're doing as if it is, in fact, a kind of science fictional um, ability. 
You read about a computer scientist, Jeffrey Hinton, who five years ago declared that we don't need to train radiologists anymore because machines could read all the x-rays. How's that working out? Not well at all. In fact, there was a recent uh, report which uh, did a survey of all the work that had been done to date with these diagnostic programs to detect cancer, and which determined that um, not only were they failures, but that sometimes the so-called diagnoses were dangerously wrong. And that if physicians um, have been depending upon these systems to make their diagnosis, there would have been terrible outcomes. And there are other studies of this sort that show that when you put raw data, in this case, images of, say, lungs and, and other body parts that may, unfortunately, have cancerous growths in front of machines, that it is possible that machine um, image uh, classification might be helpful, but uh, it was absolutely not a replacement for human uh, knowledge. I'm speaking with the software engineer, Dwayne Monroe. In the 30 or 40 years I've been following this stuff, it, the, the standard line has been we're always on the verge of some big breakthrough. Robots are going to finally take over all the, the, the office jobs. You know, it's one thing after another. We're always on the verge, and that verge seems to be a constantly moving target. It suggests that we're not really in the realm of science so much as in the realm of propaganda and ideology. That is correct. And also, I would say, of, of, just, of just raw hype for financial reasons. I mean, for example, I think that we could interpret much of what Musk does as a combination of the two. Full self-driving or FSD is always, as you say, a few years away. I mean, it's not just Musk, obviously. He's just a, a symptom of something bigger. A number of, of companies are, are constantly stating that any even modest gain is the end of something. So for example, OpenAI released a product called, uh, or a platform called uh, GPT-3, which what it does is it takes it text from all over the internet, essentially, and using a, a rules that enable it to determine what word should come after a word that uh, comes before. In other words, you can create rules about word order. And you combine this logic with uh, access to volumes and volumes of text, like Wikipedia and everything that we've written and so forth on the internet, well, then it's, it's a good chance that you can probabilistically produce text that seems plausibly to have been written by a person. However, there are problems because it's far from perfect. But when the GPT-3 was released, there were many declarations that it was the end of writing. Um, in fact, The Guardian put out an article, I believe it was last year or the year before, saying that the article that was published in The Guardian was written by a machine and are you scared yet human? This always happens in which, you know, there's some, as I say, like impressive, but still narrow accomplishment. And it's presented as if it's the end of some area of work. And it's quite telling that that is how it is portrayed as this area of work, whether it's, you know, knowledge working, physicians, attorneys, writers, factory workers, these are the terms in which it's always couched, you know, that, now this labor is going to disappear because at last we have achieved this level of automation. It never turns out to be true, but, but it's, it's telling that that is the line. About a few years ago, I was Reuters or Bloomberg or one of those wire services was using some kind of AI to write earnings report, quarterly earnings reports. You know, so sales were down 6%, profits were down 12%, and you know, the stock closed up five points. But that's not very complicated material. That's just basically... <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. A exactly. monkey couldn't do it, but it's, you know, it's getting close to that. <laughs> and you could automate something like that, right? But but what obviously what you could not automate is an analysis of of what's actually happening within, you know, within the economy, within the market and so forth. You, you would always need a person because as a, again, these systems have no context. There are things obviously that can be automated. And we we've, we've seen examples of this for decades long before the so-called AI or machine learning era, people were automating things, companies were automating things within factories, like those tasks, which could be broken down into pieces in the Fordist fashion. The painting of the chassis of the car can be automated, for example. And you can have lasers and you can have a bit of machine vision, and then you can paint the chassis using, um, using a spray painter uh, because fine-grain work isn't required or it's, it's very easily uh, broken down into constituent parts. But anything that requires insight, and I would include in this uh, things like uh, working in a restaurant. I mean, there's a whole range of human activities in the labor force that can be degraded through the use of automation. So for example, if you go into a restaurant 
and you have to use an iPad to order your stuff and a, a little robot shuttles the, the stuff to your table. Well, you can make that happen, but it's degraded experience. And also in the kitchen, there's still people. You're just pushing the people someplace else. This is really the story of, of automation. You're simply pushing the people someplace else. I mean, there's a story a couple of years ago about Tesla trying to use a robot to place some part. It's like a rug on top of a battery or something like that. <laughs> and they kept doing it over and over again, and the robot couldn't get it right. And they realized a human could do it in three seconds. There is a, a fetish quality to some of this stuff. There really is. And I, I think that Boston Dynamics provides us with a, another example of this, which is a, a firm that has produced this uh, famous robot called Atlas. Um, that people have seen usually on Twitter, you'll see like, you know, the robots dancing and so forth. And, and then people will always respond to this by saying, oh my God, it's uh, Skynet, the robots are coming to kill us and so forth. And what they don't see is the hundreds, if not thousands of hours of failure before they get it right. And what they don't know is that the robot is, is interacting within a very um, prescribed environment so that the dancing robot is an achievement, but uh, um, engineering achievement, but it, it's not an indication of what is generally possible. And I, I mentioned Boston Dynamics because on their website, they, they mention a, a device called PIC. And um, it's quite interesting because PIC is supposed to replace, as the name implies, it picks boxes and puts them from A to B. And as you watch on the website, the video on the website, you note that, well, this is quite terrible. I mean, pick is clearly much slower than a person would be, but they're trying to sell it as a, a replacement for people. And even though it doesn't state that explicitly, when you look at the video, there are no people. You don't see any people. You just see pick picking up a box in, at point A and putting the box in point B. But of course, two people, as I said, could, could do that many, many times faster and so it makes you wonder, considering the fact that the robot probably is not faster, why is it being presented this way? And my thought is that it's definitely part of a propaganda campaign to weaken the, the position of labor to, and perhaps even the, how would I put this, the mental strength of labor, because the robot cannot, like PIC cannot replace uh, people in warehouses, for example, or perhaps it can, but in very, very, very narrow circumstances. A lot of jobs that are described as unskilled actually require an awful lot of skill. An um, awful lot of skill. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want my UPS driver to not know what the hell he or she is doing, right? I mean, you, it's a skilled job, even though people think that arbitrage or something is super skilled and UPS driver is not. UPS driver is more important to me ultimately. But yeah, the I, I think that the presentation of this automation as a threat to labor, there is a factor of automation, clear. It's, it's always been true for capitalism. However, the question is to what extent um, and how deep, how deep does it go? And I think that at, at this point, what we're seeing is more potential or rather more of the presentation of the idea that your job is under threat than the reality that your job is under threat from automation in most instances. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, well, why is that? Who benefits from presenting the idea that your job is under threat? The boss likes a scared worker. Yeah, exactly. And, and even if your job really isn't under threat, if, and, and, and Doug, I'll tell you, it takes a lot of effort to, to do this research. Technically, I've been working in technology for quite some time, and I've been working with um, computing at very large scale for very large firms for a while. And then when I pivoted to, to doing you know, data analytics and so forth, when I entered the field, or, when, or rather when I transitioned my career in, into that direction, I came into it kind of wide-eyed, even though I wasn't a kid anymore, thinking, because you're trained on science fiction, oh, you know, all these amazing things are happening and we're, on this, this, we're entering a doorway into this bold new world of thinking machines. And, but once I started seeing how the sausage is made, I'm like, well, <laughs> no, we're not. That uh, paper I sent you earlier uh, by uh, Darren Asimoglu, uh, economist, said that they're using AI for pointless cost cutting. They actually don't save any money on it. Yes. Which really struck me as a very strange insight, but it does seem to have this ideological function. I'm seeing AI, I'm seeing um, machine learning in particular, which is really the most successful implementation of the broad church of what is called of the research program that is called uh, AI. I'm seeing machine learning deployed across many, many industries, across different vectors, so to speak. But much, much of it is, is surprisingly not useful to the organizations. It, there's almost a, a religious fervor that this is going to solve our labor problems. This is going to somehow do a return on investment. And a big part of that, of course, is 
is that you know many of the cloud providers, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, they they are promoting this, and there's also promotion of this idea, you know, outside of those three. Uh, just in general, just just a uh, and 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 also when we see this this obsession with you know beating China and AI and so forth, as if you know the Chinese are going to develop some super intelligence, <laughs> and then it's all over for the U.S. Like I, I don't know what the super intelligence would do, strategize how to defeat the U.S. Uh, in in every way, always. I, it's quite strange and absurd, and it enters into the area of psychoanalysis. Uh, I would say. Finally, is there anything good coming out of this? Um, or any ways that a better society could deploy this uh, this technology? Yes, absolutely. Because returning to the to the top, at its heart, what we are talking about is the ability to analyze data and gain insights from that data. And so we can imagine a situation, for example, in which a a people centered, uh, a public goods governance centered society said, um, well, you know what? There are things that we need to understand about people's needs and people are, and can tell us. And of course we will listen because that's what a, an ideal society would do. And then also we can listen to data. We can analyze the data that people are providing to us to gain insight into, into other things that are happening that maybe are hidden to us. This was obviously the goal of the CyberSyn project in Allende's Chile. The goal was to gather data from all parts of the society. Um, I, I believe that their focus was on industrial and farming data, but the vision was actually quite bold. And now we have the computational power, and I believe the mathematical methods to make such a dream a reality. And the the more chatbots we have, the more uh, surveillance technology we have, the more proctoring software, the more we have these things that are designed to enhance the power of capital um, instead of workers, uh, the further and further away we get from realizing what could be actually an extremely useful tool for, for everyone. I was Dwayne Monroe, whose day job is as a cloud data architect. You can find his writing on the topic on his website, monroelab.net. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, some of the double concerto by the Brazilian composer Felipe Lara, performed by the flutist Clara Chase, and the singer and bassist Esperanza Spaulding, with Susanna Malki conducting the Helsinki Philharmonic. Till next week, bye.